today on Two Sea Fans. Not where they pretty rough. Pretty yeah, rough. It was pretty rough. It was like a wild area. Yeah, lots of Australian pines, uh, rattlesnakes, and, and we did see a few of those. Yes, yeah. and not not always pygmy rattlesnakes. Yeah, although they were the dominant ones. There were some bigger ones. Ooh. Back in the day, Diamondback. This was, oh yes. yeah, <laughs> this was a little wild country this out here. Old Florida. That was when uh, the Longboat Key Bridge was still wooden. I think. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Two Sea Fans at Moat Marine Laboratory. I'm Haley Rutger. And I am Joe Nicholson. And we are here with our good friend, Dr. Carl Luer, one of our favorite scientists at Moat. Dr. Luer. Mm. <laughs> How are you, Dr. Luer? I'm just great. Thank you, Joe. And thank you, Haley. Yeah, thank well, you. It's good to have you here, man. Yeah. It's been, uh, I've been wanting to have you on the show for a long time because I've known you for a long time. Okay, I want Joe and Carl to compete for who's been at Moat longer. Oh, hands down, Carl. <laughs> Carl's like the walking, living history book of Moat. Yeah, that's why he's so cool. <laughs> Wait, when did you get here, Carl? I started, uh, my first day of, of actual work was July 2nd of 1979, so I passed my 38th anniversary here at Moat. Good God. Oh, my goodness. But you didn't, you weren't born in Sarasota, were you? No, I was born in St. Louis, Missouri, but we moved to Sarasota when I was five. And so I pretty much grew up in Sarasota. Um, the Cape Hayes Marine Laboratory started in the mid-50s, around in 55. And <clears throat> Jeannie Clark's husband at that time was an orthopedic surgeon. And the medical community was, was not a very large one, my father being a, a practicing surgeon who started his practice in 53. So the, all the doctors knew each other. So when the Cape Hayes Marine Laboratory started, um, and they actually resided on Siesta Key, and had a, a home on the on the water, oh, um, nice. uh, we uh, the doctors' families were closer then. There was only a handful of them. Yeah. And I remember going to their to their home on the, on the ocean or the, on the Gulf, and seeing a. a saltwater tank set up in their house for the first saltwater tank I'd ever seen. Oh, really? And that was in the late, would have been the late 50s, because uh, they had started their family by that time. Oh, that's awesome. So we should say for anybody who's just starting with us that Jeannie Clark, or you, Dr. Eugenie Clark, is the founding director of Moat. Started the Cape Hayes Marine Lab, precursor to Moat, in 1955, down in Placida. And then the lab moved to Siesta Key, and then here. Yes, and uh, Dr. Uh, Liu, <coughs> you are a um, rival to my uh, my wife's high school. You went to uh, Sarasota, I believe. You you are a sailor, sir, are you not? I graduated from high school from Sarasota High, yes. But, but prior to that, I went to outdoors school for uh, several years, um, and then Brookside Junior High. So I was pretty much a, a product of the local. Uh, educational system. Education system. Well, then the local education system is good. Yes, I, w I, would, I would agree. <laughs> because and Carl has one of the coolest jobs at Moat. He does. Days. Tell us um, what you do here and, yeah, how you do it. You know, I, I've, I hesitate to call what I work, what I do, a job um, because I equate a job with something that, that can become tedious and, and you do it out of, out of necessity what I do here is is it doesn't fall into that category. I I've pretty much created the position that I have, and I enjoy what I do. 
I've never been told what to do by the organization, and I've been able to create and develop projects that I think are worth doing as long as I can get the support to do them. <laughs> yeah, that's um, the hard part. So while, while I, I do have this position, I, I hesitate to really have it fall into the, 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 the niche that we think of a job. So what uh, is this, uh, this sustaining hobby of yours? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I'm just kidding. no two days are the same, which is what right. I like. I, I, I had the opportunity um, as I, when I finished graduate school to pursue the, the academic route, uh, to go to a traditional postdoc at a major university. I had that opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the time that I was working out those details, um, after I got my PhD, I did a short postdoc where I, where I did my work. And while I was working out the details to do this postdoc, um, I was informed by my, by my family, who still reside here in Sarasota, that they saw in the newspaper that a new research, a new director of Moat uh, had been hired, and that they were looking to to have to establish an in-house marine biomedical research program. Up until that time, any of this, any of the research that would fall under marine biomedical medical um, uh, umbrella, was done by visiting investigators hmm. who would come to Moat, use the facilities, use animals. Uh, use whatever um, employees or, or staff they could to, to collect animals and maintain things. They would do their projects. So they would go back to their institutions and write a paper, and Moat would get an acknowledgment. And that was it. And so this went on for a while, and it, it was not the the uh, direction that the new director was wanted to maintain. What director was it? This was Dr. William Taft. I contacted Bill Taft with the possibility of, of applying for a position to, to do just that, to, to, do, to develop a marine biomedical research program at Moat Marine Laboratory. Of course, the lab was small then, and the same policy that was in place there and is still in place now, if, you, if, there, if there's not necessarily money for a position, you have to be creative and bring support for that position. Yeah, yeah. And thank goodness for my major professor, he subcontracted one of his grants to me. So I came with a, with a small, a small amount, <laughs> small of, money. amount of money. Yeah. And I mean, it was small, but it was something to get me started. Get you in the door. In June of 79, and I started in early July of 79. And that would have been at this campus because you said 79, correct? It was at this campus. Yeah. We moved. Uh, we the, the physical beginnings of the present location was in 1978, so yeah. it had been about a year. Things were still not where pretty they... Rough. Pretty yeah, rough. Yeah, it was pretty rough. It was like a wild area here. Yeah, lots of Australian pines. Uh, rattlesnakes. And... We, we did see a few of those, yes, yeah. and not, not always pygmy rattlesnakes, yeah. although they were the dominant ones. There were some bigger ones. Ooh. Yeah. Back in the Eastern day, Diamondback? This was... Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> This was a little wild country this out here. Old Florida. That was when uh, the Longboat Key Bridge was still wooden, I think. <laughs> <laughs> no, it wasn't wooden, but it was a, a small drawbridge. Um, but the staff was maybe 15 to 18 people when I started. Oh, it was huge. In, oh, my gosh. It was huge. In 79. Yeah, yeah it was so huge. we were. We were a, a small, a close a band of merry men. Close knit group, though. We, yes. 
Um, we knew each other very well. We played volleyball together at, at, during our lunch hour. Mm-hmm. And the, the building that, is, that was the main structure at that time and has now been incorporated into other expanded construction was not fully complete at that time. It was part of the building was an empty shell for expansion. Yeah. And so when I, when I started at Moat, the second floor was only half um, well, there was only complete. 15 of you. Yeah, there was you only, didn't need any space. There was only half the, of the upstairs portion of the building had had walls and, and lab space. So the other half was an empty shell, which slope, which very, yeah. very quickly became complete. What is, what's marine biomedical research? Well, it, I guess it can be, be interpreted in, in any number of ways by different people. I like to think of it as, as using marine animals instead of the classic marine classic laboratory animals that you typically think of in, in under the biomedical type of umbrella usually we think of, of rats rabbits um, monkeys sometimes but but certainly mammals and what we're doing in our program is we're using because of the history of the laboratory we're using sharks skates stingrays as our and I like to call them marine mice. Well, we don't send them through mazes, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. No, we haven't no. done that. No. But I do use them in, in many ways that would be comparable to using a laboratory rat. We draw blood from them. We do minor pieces of surgery on them. Um, we, we use them as a, as a model for dosing of, of various compounds to see end results. So a lot of the same types of applications that you would think of using a, a laboratory rat. But we don't have the same restrictions, obviously, u- using uh, fish that, that would come with using um, higher animals um, in terms of, of restrictions on using, the, using them in various products. Gotcha. Yeah, these are the kind of fish that people may catch out there, and, you know, that's... Consume. Maybe some of them, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there's got to be, a, you know, besides the difference in restrictions, there's probably a lot of different sort of, like, advantages and disadvantages between using, say, a stingray or a skate versus a mouse. One of them is much closer to us in evolution, but there are other probably advantages of the, the marine ones. Yeah, I mean, I, I understand the criticism that, that these animals are, are, are distant from higher animals, but... There's a lot of things we can learn from an animal that is a, a different part of the evolutionary scale. Yeah. Certainly, we've learned a lot from invertebrates um, and other animals that are non-mammalian. Like fruit <coughs> flies? <laughs> well, they're, yes, that's a yeah. classic. Yeah. But there are, <coughs> we've learned a lot from, from snake venoms that, that have been used in a lot of medicinal, uh, medicinal purposes. So it's not just... And, and that's as, as as far removed as no, not quite, but almost as far removed from from a a, a mammal. So th- there are ways of, of of looking at at taking advantage of successes that some of these non-mammalian animals have developed over the years, and try to learn from those and see what we can apply well, to higher animals. Yeah, and even just you know physiologically, they, especially the the sharks and rays, they have no bone marrow from which is it the white blood cells would be well in the higher animals that that do have a, a skeleton of bone mm-hmm. and therefore bone marrow the bone marrow is one of the major sites of immune cell production that and the lymph and the lymph nodes lymph and lymphatic nodes. system 
And uh, sharks and their relatives have a skeleton made of cartilage, and they do not have a lymphatic system. So they don't have the, the two major sites for immune cell production that, that we know occur in, in the higher, higher animals, including mammals. And so where are their immune cells? Wait, Joe, you're jumping ahead. Why do we care about the immune oh. system in a shark? Is it because <laughs> they are really good at healing from stuff? Oh, yes. I <laughs> totally forgot. Well, one of the things that was first um, put on my plate when I came to Moat was to explore the anecdotal observation that sharks didn't get cancer. And I have to make sure that, that the statement, sharks don't get cancer, I have to make sure that that statement gets downplayed yes. because it's not completely accurate that they don't get cancer, but it is extremely rare. rare. Yes. So I, I like to always um, temper that statement by saying that, that cancer is very rare in these animals. It's not that they don't get it. It's just extremely rare. Yes, it's only been documented a handful of times. Yeah. So compared to the bony fish that I can't say is epidemic proportions, mm -hmm. but, but it's not unusual to find a, a fish with, with a tumor. Yeah. And there's a registry of tumors in lower animals that's maintained um, in Washington D.C. Huh. And they keep and they keep it as statistics for looking at at what kinds of tumors develop in different animals and what frequencies are and things like that, just for statistical. That's amazing that they keep a registry of that. Oh, it's that's been been around cool. for some time, and and, cool. and I've known about it, and I've oh. contributed to it because we did find one one liver. Uh, tumor in an animal in my years here that it is in the registry now mm. um, but the 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 point being that uh, these most of the of the the feeling that they didn't get cancer was was based on the observation that they just didn't see it mm. and so that we now know that it has occurred a few times so the but I still was charged with trying to to define whether that statement was totally inaccurate that that they that we could induce cancer in these animals and therefore d display the, the the story um or whether whether we could provide evidence that would support the observation but but research evidence with with uh, with tangible uh, tangible data gotcha so the first 10 years that I was here at moat we tried with three or four different chemical carcinogens to try to induce cancer in sharks and skates. Mm -hmm. um, at that time, I wasn't using rays yet, any of this work, but I was using sharks and skates. And we, we um, were able to see chemically that their DNA was affected by the chemicals. In other words, the, the proper binding of our chemicals occurred at the DNA level which normally should have resulted in a mutation that could have been expressed as a, as a tumor development. Mm -hmm. We found that, that their DNA was repaired efficiently to the point where even though we saw some changes, the DNA eventually in these animals was restored to its, to its, original. its original structures. Wow. So we've known for some time that their DNA repair was very, was very efficient. And we call them lower animals. Shouldn't. Yeah. Right. So that's that's one thing that, that we learned about these animals. Although that, because of the the instrumentation and and the 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 lab environment that we had, we weren't able to really pursue that the way we wanted to. Yeah. But we also it also told us that that we could keep induce keep exposing these animals to carcinogens 
ad nauseum and not understand what's happening. Yes. So we, around 1990, we shifted our focus to try to understand what role the immune system might play in this low incidence of cancer. And low incidence of disease in general, it's very rare to find a sick shark. Mm-hmm. So, and that, that was about the same time that the there was an awareness of the AIDS situation right around 1990, where that was a disease that was that was very coming, much in yes. front of the uh, front of the, the media and it was the, going the, bigger yeah. and bigger. And, yeah. Yeah. And so, as an, as a response to that situation, we we I mean the the research community spent a lot of time with under, trying to understand immune function. In, in humans, because obviously there was an impairment of, a, of an immune response in, in, in this disease. Mm-hmm. So there was an explosion of information right around that time about immune function in higher animals. So it helped us then to start to ask questions about immune function in our animals. There wasn't a whole lot known about immune function in sharks, skates, and rays when we started looking at, at this this concept in, in around, around 1990. So I was able to bring a postdoc into my program in the early 90s um, who came from an immunology lab that I had been collaborating with for some time at Clemson University. And this, of course, was Kathy Walsh. I was going to say, is that the infamous Dr. Kathy Walsh? Yes. So she came in as a postdoc in roughly 1992, I'm going to say. And so she's been here for 25 years. So people aren't trained in elasma brank or shark immunology so we you have to entice people that are trained in classic immunology to to have to challenge them to apply their skills to to this new animal system figure out this riddle so that was my challenge to kathy was uh, i had a lot of questions for her my background is protein biochemistry so i wasn't able to to really do the things i wanted to in Mm -hmm. immunology her her skills were 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 up to date and came from an outstanding laboratory Yep. And I so one of the, so we jumped into the deep end without really knowing how to swim, <laughs> and we've learned a lot um, between Kathy's work and my work to to try to characterize immune function in these animals. And we've published several papers that that people are citing quite a bit and, and are being able to use now. So hmm. with shark immune systems, what's so special about them? What have you guys? What's one of the points that you guys have learned, maybe published on, maybe high fived each other over and been like, "Yeah, we figured it out." <laughs> cool. Look at that. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I, I I often get asked about eureka moments, and a lot of times they, they don't happen that way. They happen in retrospect, right. where where your results all of a sudden are saying, "Oh, what we did back to such and such." Really was something significant that now now we're building on. Retrospective high five. Yeah. So, <laughs> so we, we we mentioned a few minutes ago about the sharks not having any bone marrow or lymph nodes. Yeah. We had to ask ourselves where are they making their immune cells. Yeah. Well, it turns out that there's an organ in shark skates and rays that no other animal groups have. It's not a piano. It's an organ. <laughs> <laughs> Joe, you want to you want to raise your hand and tell Carl what organ that is? It's the. Uh, you can do it. Uh, give me a hand, Carl. Charlie. Uh, a lasmobranchial. No. It, it, it means like a, above the gonads, sort of. No. Huh? Ep- 
Okay. Uh, epigonal. It, you got yeah! it. Score. So the the epigonal organ yes. Yes. Um, continues on from the gonad. So uh-huh. it's, it continues on from the ovaries in females, and it continues on from the testis in males. When I took comparative anatomy as a, as a, as a student, the shark obviously is one of the more prominent um, animals in a comparative anatomy class. And it was taught to us as a as an organ of no known function. Really, in other words, it, it's it's a its structure was identified and known, but they didn't have any idea what it did. Hmm. It disintegrates very rapidly. So, in a lot of specimens, if if it's been if the animal has been sitting on the deck of a boat for a while, and if you look try to look for it, it, it sometimes is is mush, and so you can't identify it. So it has to be very very fresh because it is lymphoid. Turns out that this organ does nothing but make immune cells. Wow! And so it is now uh, widely considered as a bone marrow equivalent tissue. So in other words, it takes the place of not having bone marrow in these animals. It does nothing but make immune cells. Hmm. If you if you do histology of this organ, or if you do tissue imprints, um, and look at it under a microscope, you'd think you'd be looking at bone at, at marrow because it has a, a similar structure. Of the of the tissue that that marrow would have, and it makes the same kinds of cells. So, wow. so we are obviously very interested in this organ, mm-hmm. and we've done a lot of, of work uh, with it in terms of its structure and function. And one of the challenges that I that I gave to Kathy was to see what she could do to learn how to put put these cells into into culture, so we could study their functions better. A lot of times, scientists work with cells in culture in the laboratory uh, outside of an animal because it's a way to, to look at, at their functions without having any interference from surrounding tissues or fluids or behavior or whatever in the animal. So it's very complicated to look at a, at a tissue function in an animal. Mm-hmm. But when you look at the cells removed, many times you can, you can learn things that, that you couldn't learn um, otherwise, I hear that some you know cells from marine origins aren't always so easy to grow. <laughs> well, there's there's no cookbook. There's no yeah. these aren't you don't open up a a, um, a lab manual and, and look up a shark cell culture. It's not there. The culture recipe book. <laughs> well, there is there is information on culturing other uh, yeah. higher higher animal tissues, yeah. and there are, are there are media that you can purchase that are already already have all the details worked out. So it was a big challenge, and and. And Kathy's background was was classical immunology. She'd worked with with mammals, uh, uh, and and avian species. So she had a good background. So and it wasn't a weekend project. We, we always admitted that, that yeah. it, it took it took a while, a lot of trial and error, and a lot of um, uh, uh, attempts didn't work. And if you look in the literature at people that had published, and there were a couple of papers that had published um, immune cell cultures. The pictures of their cells were awful, and you don't publish your worst pictures. You always publish your best pictures. Uh-oh. So, so these pictures didn't even it didn't impress us, even though they were probably the best ones they got. So, Kathy eventually worked out the conditions to, to keep these cells happy in culture, and 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 so we've learned a lot uh, with with her ability to to do that to reach Ooh. that that goal. While the research sounds exciting and, and the public thinks, oh, gosh, that's, that's easy. It must be easy to get funding for. It is not. Because they are non-traditional animals, there's not a, a broad base of people that are using them like we are using them. It's, in fact, we're pretty unique in, being, in using these animals as a laboratory animal model. So it's, 
it is actually more difficult to fund a non-traditional model than a traditional one. A lot of the funding agencies like to to fund areas that there's, that the progress is going to be made more rapidly and that it's, it's less risk. Mm-hmm. Um, so it has been a constant struggle to convince agencies that, it, that these animals are worth studying. Well, and it's hard to get the, the you know, you might get funding for one or two years, and then after that there's no funding to continue the research. That's a, that's a, a continual problem, yes. Yeah. I've actually had more, more success from private foundations mm-hmm. than I have from federal agencies. Uh, private foundations um, tend to be, take a little more, more risks and, and, and support things that are, that, are, that they th- they think are just crazy enough to to, to support. So yeah, yeah. that's that's been my the way I've I've survived during my years here is through primarily through private foundations. Well, and I can imagine uh, another you know aspect of you know trying to maintain these animals even is harder than you know keeping mice alive. Well, Moat has a rich history in maintaining shark skates and rays, so we know what we're doing and. So we do spend a lot of time maintaining our animals in good under in good conditions and, and healthy conditions, and I have staff that that are that are dedicated to that. So I I must give them credit as well. Yeah, but for a mouse, you just change the wood shavings every once in a while. <laughs> you never had a mouse. Throw have some you? seeds in there, and away it goes, right? So <laughs> don't don't no, 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 don't, don't go there. Don't, <laughs> don't go there, Carl. <laughs> Okay, now I want to know. Nope. I'll tell you later, Haley. Okay, okay. fair enough. <laughs> Completely non-controversial comment here. Uh, you can actually see uh, some of the animals that Carl and Kathy have worked with, like our bonnethead sharks in the aquarium and the clear nose skates and some of the rays that we have in the aquarium. So they live here, and they are our, our research buddies. So we've been talking about the shark immune system and their, you know, seeming resistance to to cancer and other issues. Uh, so how far are you and Kathy along in that study? What what is what are some of the key things you've learned so far? Well, as I mentioned, Kathy was successful in developing the conditions to, to keep shark immune cells happy in culture. Mm-hmm. That was a, a major accomplishment, and what we learned subsequent to that was that while they're happy in culture, they secrete compounds into the surrounding culture medium, which are not there when we start putting them into culture. So they are definitely showing up after they're in culture. And we started looking at some of these compounds to see whether they were had a regulatory activity on the, on the cells um, that might be a, a, some sort of an immune factor. And we don't have the answer to that yet, but what we did learn was that these compounds, whatever they are, are able to inhibit human cancer cells in culture. Yeah. Cancer researchers typically use what are called um, cell cultures that are uh, cell lines that they can purchase from a clearinghouse in Washington, D.C. So that's like a tumor cell that we know its genetic background these are cells that, that are originated from actual tumors and cancers that have been transformed, and that, that's a hard word to, to necessarily define for this audience, but, yeah. they, but they're, they're, they, are not, they are no longer able to, to transfer the, the ability to, to give the handlers cancer mm. so it's not something that you can, yeah, yeah I'm <laughs> glad to hear that so we are, so we we have looked at the effect of our immune cell compounds 
on several different uh, human cancer cell lines, and it does effectively inhibit these cells in culture. And we've looked at maybe 15 of these cell lines, and, it, and our compounds will inhibit all of them, but the good thing is it doesn't inhibit them all to the same extent. Mm. If, it was just, if it just blanket killed every single cell we tested, then that would indicate that it was a non-specific type of a, of a killing. Yeah. And what we'd like to have is a more specific kill. So the fact that this that the cell line, the cell lines um, vary in their responses, told us initially that that we were working with a specific mechanism. And we have we have over the years understood the mechanism by which our compounds can kill human cancer cells, and we've published on that. Mm-hmm. The good mechan- the good the good finding is that this mechanism is is one that targets the transformed cells, in other words, the cancer cell lines, preferentially to normal cells. And we'd like to think that, that we're making, while we're making progress, it may not be fast enough for some people, but we are making progress. Nice. Well, like all good things. Like all good things. This episode must also come to an end. Aw. Yes. I know there's so much more we could talk to you about. There's a this. lot more. I'd love to do just a show with Carl just on the history of moat. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, you're a well of knowledge, man. <laughs> but. We'll have to get your colleague Kathy on here eventually. Will you convince her for us? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Hales. All right. Well, this has been great. We'll see you all uh, in two weeks for another episode of 2C Fans at Moat. Bye-bye.